Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where the world's hardest problems meet faith's deepest values. Is that what we say? It is. I think it is where faith's <laughs> deepest values meet the world's hardest problems. Why would... Okay. Are we a solution to the problem, or is the world rising in confrontation with our ethics? I don't know. Let's talk about our lovely new sound equipment we have today, Jeremy. We, we do have, and I... <laughs> There's some radio voice that you can get if you get right on the microphone. So yeah, guys, thank you for being a part of this experiment. So far, we are officially out of the proof of concept stage. Y'all seem to like the show. We get good feedback. We want more. Um, people like to do the easy thing, like listen to the show. Um, and what really, really helps, and we can see all of you listening, so thank you, dear listener. But a like, a subscribe, a quick review is incredibly helpful for us to be able to get this out in front of other people. It hits that algorithm, it tickles it just right, and it gives us to more people. Um, in our field, we're trending really highly on listened podcasts. We're in the top five. If you look at ethics podcasts on most of the top podcasting places, if um, you limit that to Christian ethics, we're about the top, depending on what day of the week it is. So that's really exciting. Our numbers have us trending um, in the top 50% of uh, all podcasts. And so 12 episodes in, I'm very pleased with that. That's great, Jeremy. So we decided to invest a little bit of money to, to take the next step. So we are uh, using brand new equipment today to improve the sound quality, and we'd love your feedback on that too. Yeah, so please throw that in there. And we, we could sweeten some of those subs, those uh, comment deals. Like if you leave a question and a five-star comment, we'll answer it. Does that sound like a good game to play? Perhaps identify the, the questioner on the air, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think that would get people's attention. Go for it. So five-star review with a question. We'll get a shout-out and an answer. I think that sounds fun. I hope we get some of those. So other than the podcast, there's a lot of stuff going on. We've been busy. You've been... You've been doing the grandpa life, too, on top of all of the fun academic stuff. Yeah, sometimes it seems it's more grandpa than anything else right now. We have a four-year-old and one-year-old delightful grandchildren and spent a lot of May uh, after school ended taking care of them and uh, some some fun stuff playing this summer. So we live two doors down from our grandchildren, and uh, we're really grateful what to a blessing. get to see so much of them. That's so exciting. And I don't think I've said it on the program before, but I'm 22 weeks into pregnancy. I look very pregnant at you the moment. yourself, Jeremy? I think you're, you're carrying it well. Well, so. I've been drinking for two, so <laughs> one of those Baptists. Um, but yeah, we're 22 weeks pregnant, and we could not be more excited. Really happy for you. So there's Master. so much good stuff going on. Um, things are going well in uh, my church ministry. How, is the, uh, how are things going for you preparing for your sabbatical? Good. Uh, I have two main projects that I'm working on. I think we're going to be talking about one of them later, but uh, but I'm editing a collection of essays on the work of Glenn Stassen, my teacher, mentor, and friend and co-author. And hopefully that'll be done this summer. And then I'm I'm writing a new book on post-evangelical life. But I won't That'll be my main project over sabbatical, and I won't Excellent. say more about that until our next episode. Yeah, we're going to get into the weeds on that one. Yeah. Evangelicals are fun that way. 
And I, I'm headed back to Uganda. I've got a uh, sort of leadership conference situation uh, that'll have some ethics talk. They've asked for my expertise there. Um, and then pastoral leadership and a lot of work on discernment. How do you, how do, you do theology in a pastoral context when your congregation doesn't have access to materials? When all you have is the Bible, which is a pretty good place to be that's still better than a lot of the world. But when all you have is the Bible, how do you do good theology? That's a good question. And so I'm, I'm working on that. That's also part of my writing project that's going really well. I'm a couple articles into that commentary project that is resources for under-resourced pastors. That's cool. So a lot, lot of good stuff going on and a busy, busy summer for those of us in church life. Um, you've got an engagement coming up this week, right? The 5th? Where are you going to be? Yes, I will be in Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock. Where is Lubbock, Texas? <laughs> We'll edit this out. It, uh, it is some, <laughs> somewhere a long way from where I live. I think it's uh, West Texas. Um, I just get on the airplane and go where it leads me. Go where you're told. Uh, that's right. Yeah. It's an interesting opportunity, Jeremy. Um, I'm entering a world that I haven't really had any contact with professionally at all. Um, it's the Churches of Christ. Okay. The Campbellite tradition. Uh, and when we lived in West Tennessee, there were awful lot of COC people, as they were called. And uh, our kids went to a Church of Christ school for the high school years. But now, I mean, in Atlanta, there just really hasn't been a lot of contact. But the, it turns out that the, the academics of the Church of Christ do a major academic conference every summer. And I think it's called the Old Bricked. Scholars Conference. Wow. Did I get that right? Olbricht? I've got Christian Scholars Con yeah, Conference. Yeah, Olbricht Christian Scholars Conference. Okay, so th there's an insider, maybe an insider name in a way they try to publish it. Yeah, I mean, there's who some, knows who Olbricht is. Yeah, there was some guy named Olbricht. Uh, anyway, Gave him a lot of money or did something important. Yeah, and so so I think this is the 39th annual uh, summer event. It seems that academics of a wide variety of disciplines uh, get together. It's kind of a like an academic reunion in the Church of Christ world. I would never have been invited to this world. It's not my world. But, but they have a, um, a new, relatively new, annual plenary lecture as part of this conference. It's called the Fred D. Gray Lecture on Civil and Human Rights. Very good. You got it in the wrong order, but you got the right words. Human it's human and, and civil, civil human rights. And civil rights, how, yeah. How does a little church, a little uh, institution, not church, um, in Texas, and which Disciples of Christ? This is uh, Church of Christ. Church of Christ. So it's Lubbock Christian University. How did they get Fred Gray? Well, Fred Gray was a Church of Christ, and is actually a Church of Christ uh, minister, and um, was raised Church of Christ. And he was somebody who everybody should have heard about, but has not necessarily heard about. Um, Fred Gray was a young lawyer in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, and he represented uh, first Claudette Colvin, the teenager who was the first uh, black person to defy the segregated busing in Montgomery. Who we frequently overlook. Generally do. And then he... Uh, talked and strategized with a woman named Rosa Parks for months. 
I know about her. She was on Doctor Who. <laughs> there you go. Uh, prior to her, her decision to go ahead and defy the segregated busing rules and getting arrested, then he represented her. And then Fred Gray was instrumental in the decision of a group that they needed a, uh, a Montgomery Improvement Association mm-hmm. and it needed a leader. And they would go with a young minister new in town named Martin Luther King Jr. who would... Uh, I saw some paper uh, this week that said that he was elected in absentia as the <laughs> as the chair of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Was it a religious organization? That's a good church move right <laughs> nice there. Nice move. If you're not... Academics, it happens sometimes, too. If you're not in the room, you get appointed chair. In fact, that happened to me this spring um, at Mercer. So, so anyway... And then he went on, and he, he ended up uh, personally representing Martin Luther King in terms of the legal challenges that he faced okay. uh, during the Montgomery experience, and then had a long and distinguished career. He dealt with uh, uh, representing the uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment mm-hmm. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he actually lives history. in or near Tuskegee still to this day. Okay. Yeah. I've got um, family in the Tuskegee area. I've spent right? some time over there. Yeah. And... And so he's a legend in the legal part of the civil rights battle. But he was Church of Christ, and the story is that he hit the, the discrimination that he experienced at the hands of white Church of Christ people mm. was very painful for him. It included his uh, educational experience uh, in Nashville at the school that later became Lipscomb University. And uh, eventually there was a lawsuit that he was involved in challenging that his his uh life purpose was to challenge segregation everywhere he could find it but eventually not that many years ago uh lipscomb gave fred gray an honorary doctorate and it it was the uh part of a process of reconciliation okay and another part of the process of you might say repentance and reconciliation was to endow a significant lecture in the name of fred gray and and it happens now at this uh, at this annual scholars conference. James Cone was the first full lecturer, and I think I'm fourth in line. I'm okay. the first uh, white speaker in this lectureship. Now that's that's an interesting thing to talk about, because um, here's here's two white guys on a podcast talking about race again. Um, <laughs> who do we think we, we are? are. Yeah. Why do we think we can do this? Um, so is it because of the AAR address that you landed this gig? Yes. Um, I, I've, I've seen the, I've seen the text of it and it's not, it's not identical. You're not doing the same, uh, presentation or even you're not giving the same charge. It's similar, but it's, we're moving, we're going somewhere. Yeah. Um, that. AAR presidential address, which I believe we spoke about on this podcast. Right? Yes, if you if you don't know what we're talking about, you can go back a few episodes, and the um the build up in the process is in an episode called AAR twenty. What year was it? 18? It was twenty nineteen. What day is it? Um, and there is also the address in its totality is available as an earlier episode on this podcast titled "In the Ruins of White Evangelicalism." That's right. Yeah. So one of the people uh, who organizes, or I think the main person responsible for uh, leading the committee that decided who would be the Fred Grace speaker was there that night. Okay. 
And he thought that it was a really important address, and he thought that some version of it would be very appropriate as the Gray Lecture this year. And so he contacted me. His name is David Fleer, and he asked me to do something, some version of that talk for their audience. So that's what I'll be doing in Lubbock, Texas on Wednesday afternoon, June 5th. It seems that in this address, you're more... You're more targeted. I guess it's shorter, too. This is a shorter it, it, one than uh-huh. the AR address. Yeah. But you go right for um, white supremacy in it. There's a couple places where you take a sharpened stick to it. Yeah, I, I think that as I, as I look back on this particular piece of work, which is the beginning of something, maybe. Um, I mean, the, the heart of it is analyzing African-American novels, classic African-American novels, couple dozen of them and listening to what these novels say and have their characters say and think about white people and and then I extract from uh, or abstract from those stories you know three main themes of that what what systemic white supremacism and racism does, to white people in these stories is morally debase us um, that our religion supposedly Christianity is co-opted by the racism and is powerless to to actually challenge the racism and that we have a remarkable ability to blind ourselves to any of mm-hmm. this so moral debasement religious powerlessness and perceptual blindness are the three main themes so that the heart of the address is the same, uh, going through the novels, listening to their striking moments and scenes, and then drawing those three main themes. I, I framed it a little bit differently for this audience mm-hmm. and talked a little bit more crisply about why I turned to these novels and how um, how much I have learned from them and and you know kind of where do we go from here. And the where we go from here, it's interesting because I actually ended differently. Did you read the, yeah, the new text? Yeah, you put a different, and, and yeah. I think you spent more time with moral debasement in this one. Yeah. I, I end with Job. Mm-hmm. From Sunday school, yeah. right? I'm, t- I'm starting a, a long study of Job. By the way, I am thinking about writing a book on Job. Okay. Yeah. There's some good ones out there. You'd yeah. have a lot of competition. Yeah, I would. It's one but, of my favorites. Yeah. So... I think figuring out what, where do we go from here is the hardest part of this address for me. And I've, I've had, it must have been 10 different ways to end this address. Mm-hmm. And there was one that was attempted in Denver for AAR and a different one is being attempted this week in, in Texas. So. I, I love my life in the pulpit and in the congregation because I never only have one shot. That's a blessing of the Stella ministry that I'm, uh, engaged him. That's true. And when you're the, you know, when you when you have a guest lectureship, you have one shot. You got to hit it. Yeah. You got to get it right the first time too. And then they're not going to go listen to the follow up every time. Yeah. I look forward to being in that community. Apparently, five to eight hundred scholars come wow. every year, so that would make it as big or bigger than the Society of Christian Ethics, um, my main guild. Um, so that's a substantial group, and it's interdisciplinary. So there'll be. English professors and science professors and, you know, plenty of religion mm-hmm. and Bible people, too. 
You know, everywhere you turn, thoughtful Christian folks are dealing with race. And the Church of Christ is in that conversation, or the Churches of Christ, I think they like to be called. The folks of the Churches of Christ and the academics, they're, they're in that conversation too. Um, they're largely a Southern and Southwestern-based denomination. And, and so this whole heritage of race in the South and Southwest is right. their story too. And um, the shameful history and the efforts to, to, to own it. Here's something, here's something else that I'm, I'm noticing. I keep running into more and more people who are, including, I mean, white people too, who are more seriously and deeply engaging uh, racism than I have seen before. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's on people's minds, and there's, there's got to be several reasons why, but the emboldenedness of sort of light white supremacy not always light but mm-hmm. yes i think white su- white nationalism white supremacism has been emboldened because there's the big uglies there's the obvious we have our neo nazis we have our fascist parties we have folks that march um we have our proud boys um and our militias that go out and yeah. are big ugly white supremacy kkk but- as well yeah, but like in my congregation, in the congregations I've served, there's a a Bible study workshop thing that I've run several times uh, called Help, I Think I'm a Polite Racist. Mm, yeah. And uh, the polite racists, um, the maybe unexamined social location of whiteness in the South is feeling like it's able to voice its um, martyrdom complex that it's developed in response to the expansion of civil liberties and dignity for others. Even this, and this is another, a blessing of working in local church congregation settings. Um, I had someone talking to me last week about, um, I need to stop talking about race because it's not an issue. Um, We dealt with that. Uh, All the racism is being fabricated by people um, so they, they can gain victim status for some internet virtue signaling or some sort of purpose. There's a commodity in victimhood. So you, you need to stop telling people that they can be victims. You need to stop talking about racism because it'll just go away if we stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't need to challenge it anymore. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I can plant seeds and take it slow. I can do and just not stop working, not stop talking about it, keep doing um, race relations in class and keep doing um, work from the pulpit. I can just keep being there because they're going to keep being there because it's their church. Um, but how do we, what do you think? What, what's going on with the emboldened polite racist? Because they, I think they, the obvious big uglies are more dangerous because they will actually hit you. But the the silent white guy who's, who's okay with... The, there's okay. I live in Kennesaw. I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but I live in Kennesaw. In downtown Kennesaw, on the main stretch, is a place called Wild Man's. Um, it's across from the Confederate Museum, and it is like an it's openly a white supremacist store, mm. 
and it's it's open and there for business. I think, and this needs some more thought. Academics like to research a hundred books before we say anything, mm-hmm. especially that might be controversial. But what I think is that the idea that white people are supreme, that this is a this is a white country, that white people are smarter, uh, more talented, uh, deserve to lead, deserve to rule, all the elements of white supremacism, as it has been called, is deep in our marrow as a country. And I actually think when you look at what's happening in other places in the world, too, it's it's, it's not just an American thing, but there's a special Southern American version mm-hmm. of it, I think, right? And every challenge to it has been met with strong resistance, often violent resistance. I would, I think, what we're now seeing is that decisive defeats of white supremacism did have happened, right? Uh, but did not mean the end of the attitudes. Uh, sometimes it has, but it has sometimes meant that those attitudes have been forced underground mm-hmm. and and then you become uh, a martyr then you're a victim you're suffering for your cause yeah um so they've been forced underground you're not allowed to say certain things in public you're not allowed to do certain things at institutions you're not allowed to do things that would be your preference well that's just do. political correctness right and so then so then you go with the political correctness trope and there are things that people say among fellow white people that they would not say like like it's at you know at a picnic or something or mm-hmm. a, or a, a, a club that they would not say uh, in a public place where they might get in trouble. So so there's a lot of um, very only thinly buried racism right. that is still there. Um, but what I think is um, cultural leaders, and I would include Donald Trump and others. Uh, are authorizing by their actions and, and words some of the unveiling of of the buried sentiments and uh, some sense that, okay, well, maybe I'll just go ahead and say this. Maybe I can. Maybe it's okay to go ahead and say this. Maybe I'll, maybe it's brave mm-hmm. to go ahead and say this. And so, so it's like, um, I don't know, it's like a poison that people, some people recognize as a poison and other people don't recognize as a poison. And they don't want it to be seen as a poison. They want it to be seen as something quite opposite of that. And they certainly don't want to be told what they're allowed to think, right. say, or do. And so liberty, defiance, heritage, identity, um, Anti-political correctness just for the hell of it. Trolling. That's uh-huh. that's the the internet's yeah. a horrible, horrible place. The the if you want to make me mad, you you start me on talking about virtue signaling and but the, the opposite of that is to troll. And I, I think um I recently finished a, a book by Lacan and it <laughs> makes me think I'm much smarter than I am. Anytime I read psychoanalysis, I'm like, well now I shall be the perfect pastor and i'm like no i I need to refer everyone out everyone's messed up i go one of two ways i'm a hypochondriac with it now but there's all these people they're like i'm not a racist i'm just trolling i'm just trying to make people mad i'm like i'm pretty sure 
that what you're saying with the mask of the troll is you without a mask. And you right. need to be re- like right now. Okay, so there's 4chan, one of the wonderful auto- underbottoms of the, the normal internet. Uh, likes to create racist tropes where there aren't one. Like the, the two-finger peace sign. This one wasn't race, but it was like, throw up the two fingers so that you let the leftists know how many genders there are. Oh. Uh, so now you can't do this in pictures anymore. Or the OK sign is now WP for white power. And they, they made that up. They said, this would be hilarious. Let's make the OK sign a white power uh, hand gesture and then no one can use it. And they're saying the ha- now this week, Hashtags are swastikas. Oh. It's called the the fascist tag, fascist oh. hashtag. I'm kind of glad I'm not as into the deep deep uh, weeds of the web as you are to know all of this mm-hmm. stuff. But the but. thing is, once it, CNN reported on the hashtag thing two hours after 4chan said it would be so funny if we told the world this was racist. And they reported on it and now people know about it. And so if you drop a hashtag in the wrong place, you are now a racist. And so lots of people are doing it on purpose. They're using the, oh. the keck frog that didn't used to be racist, but now it's racist. And they're using the hand gesture that didn't used to be racist, but now it's racist. And they, You know what? That sounds like what they're doing is baiting the media partly, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trolling them. To me. It's fun to see them mad. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think that this idea that one of the funnest things to do is to take hyper politically correct people and just kind of poke them mm-hmm. and make them oh that's trigger that, them trigger them to trigger them uh, to trigger the lefties uh, is is uh, what melt could the be, snowflakes yeah what could be more entertaining than that you know so so if you take it back to to the um, so that's the very 2019 kind of phenomenon but mm-hmm. but when you do that and some people there are some people like I've got teenagers at my church who think that is funny and I'm trying to explain to them by engage it's funny for you to engage in an act that didn't used to be violent that is now perceived as violent but it also means someone is now being victimized by your doing it i know for you it means okay but there's someone who sees you doing it and they now feel unsafe because you're intentionally doing it in a way that looks like the way that you're not doing it there's a lot of words there but i yeah i think i made sense that makes sense it makes sense in the twisted way that what we're dealing with right now yeah it's an odd world Uh, i would just say I don't know. I, I'm, I'm. I look for signs of hope. I think it's hopeful that the Churches of Christ academics have have made this gesture of reconciliation, and they have honored one of their own who had been discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And his name is is now being discussed as opposed to being forgotten. And I also. I feel proud that something in my work is seen as sufficiently promising for for truth telling and reconciliation related to race that I would be asked to speak in a lineup uh, uh, a lineup of speakers in the name of Fred Gray. That's very cool. You know, and um, by the way, I mean, okay, so let's take the Baptists for just a second. Uh, let's take the uh, moderate Baptists. Let's take. Uh, how about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? How about the schools associated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? This is feeling very specific. How about that? Or, or anybody, or any other denomination largely rooted in the South? Okay. Where's your version of a Fred Gray lectureship? Right. I think that that that's a good question to ask. How serious are we about dealing with our 
racist heritage. And dealing with our polite Southern moderate Mm -hmm. heritage, which always has meant looking concerned and being on the sidelines uh, of the real street battles that happened for justice in the 60s and 70s and um, generally uh, keeping our hands clean. Mm-hmm. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, you know. So so I just want to honor the Church of Christ folks who have, who have decided to do this. They're dealing with their own heritage. They're dealing with the skeletons in their own closet. That's so scary. And um, I wonder uh, who else might be challenged uh, to do the same. I think one section that was expanded on in the lecture you'll deliver this week over the AAR address was the idea of white suspicion. Um, Could you talk a little about that? Actually, there's something really promising in that section. It was I didn't end up putting it in the AAR address. And so it was one of those roads not taken for the Mm -hmm. conclusion. Read read that um, that section or okay, whatever got, you'd like yeah to i've got the that. list here of yeah. all the suspicions mm-hmm. so suspicions of hermeneutics that displace inerrantism as a dyslexic that's a horrifying word way <laughs> too many consonants <laughs> <laughs> for principled and liberative readings aiming at advancing abundant life for all next suspicion of theologies that focus on god's liberation of the oppressed horrifying suspicion of missiologies that center social justice in the mission of God and the church. Suspicions of church histories that confront honestly the corruption of European and American Christianities by white supremacism. Mm. Suspicions of focus on social rather than personal ethics, or social ethics that does something other than fixate on sexuality and bioethics. That one's really interesting to me. Let's see. Uh, suspicions of theological education that decenters historic straight white male voices suspicion above all of christologies that treat jesus as savior of from and for the disinherited yeah that that almost uh is a a programmatic statement for another book isn't it you know it um, is you should write that one so Dealing with race seriously and dealing with African-American theology, womanist theology, and these novels from black authors has clarified some things for me. And um, one is that what a lot of us were taught is just orthodoxy Mm -hmm. is white American Protestant Christian orthodoxy and a lot of the um challenges to that orthodoxy actually come from marginalized peoples who understand that that orthodoxy involves suppressing their voices and preventing the emergence of a version of christianity that would challenge what you could call white supremacist christianity so just to take, for example, um, inerrantism, which says nothing in the Bible, the, the truthfulness or the inspiration of, of no part of the Bible can be challenged, not formally, right? Mm-hmm. And so if Paul says slaves obey their masters, 
slaves, obey your masters, as to the Lord. It's interesting that in black theology and black preaching in the American setting, that always had to be challenged. It had to be challenged by people who were taking seriously black suffering during the, during slave days. A hermeneutic had to be developed that could make sense of why one must actually challenge that text. Feminist theology has done the same thing related to uh, texts that, that are demeaning of women or that make women subordinated. Theology after the Holocaust has had to deal with that in relation to the anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Jewish texts or texts that have been read as anti-Jewish, mm-hmm. like his, his blood be on us and on our children related to Jesus' crucifixion and the Jewish people. In other words, when you take seriously the use of the Bible and not always the abuse of the Bible, just the, the reading of the Bible in a way that hurts people, then you end up needing a hermeneutic that doesn't lead you to a reading of the Bible that hurts people. Right. And so you end up having to take seriously things like liberative readings of the Bible and feminist readings of the Bible and black readings of the Bible and uh, queer readings of the Bible and so on, because these are voices that are looking to to still take the Bible seriously, but but understand that the Bible... If the Bible is used in a way that crushes people's dignity, then that is not how it should mm-hmm. be read. That's not what Jesus is that's up to. Not what to. Jesus is about, right? And so it's a. Um, that's just one example uh, of how conservative, white-dominated theology doesn't want to hear those challenges and, and treats them as unorthodox or marginal. Mm-hmm. When I think those challenges are central. If we take seriously who Jesus is and what Jesus's ministry was about, what the kingdom of God is about, um, so so take I guess what I'm saying is taking seriously the history of Christian misbehavior, especially white Christian misbehavior towards other people. If you take it really seriously, it can come back to you in terms of having to rethink some core theological, hermeneutical, biblical themes and methodological issues like how do we understand the inspiration and authority of the Bible? And just to just say, oh, those are unorthodox questions, you're not allowed to ask those questions, is to suppress a conversation that must mm-hmm. happen. So, so yes, and now I see why you found this a little more radical or pointed, because that section was not in the AAR address. Uh, it was going to be, but I ended up think feel, feeling like that for that really broad audience, it wasn't as relevant as it would be for right. this audience. So that is actually part of what I'm going to deal with in my new book that I'm going to be writing this fall on post-evangelical Christianity. Where do we go from here? Perhaps we can talk about that next. That'll be our next episode. All right. Very good. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, listeners. 